out of some 460 Bible verses that talk about justice, we could only get in so many. So don't worry, I've chosen two passages, not four, the other 458, to talk about the biblical roots of justice. The first scripture reading from Isaiah 58, verse 6 through 12. The second from the Gospel according to Mark. I'll be reading from verse 11, beginning, uh, rather chapter 11, verse 15 through verse 18. Isaiah 58, verse 6 through 12. Isn't this the fast I choose? Releasing wicked restraints, untying the ropes of a yoke, setting free the mistreated and breaking every yoke? Isn't it sharing your bread with the hungry and bringing the homeless poor into your house, covering the naked when you see them and not hiding from your own family? Then your light will break out like the dawn and you will be healed quickly. Your own righteousness will walk before you and the Lord's glory will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and God will say, I'm here. If you remove the yoke from among you, the finger pointing, the wicked speech, if you open your heart to the hungry and provide abundantly for those who are afflicted, your light will shine in the darkness and your gloom will be like the noon. The Lord will guide you continually and provide for you even in the parched places. He will rescue your bones you will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water that won't run dry. They will rebuild ancient ruins on your account. The foundations of generations past you will restore. You will be called mender of the broken. And then from the gospel according to Mark, chapter 11, verse 15 through 18. They came into Jerusalem. After entering the temple, he, being Jesus, Throughout those who were selling and buying there, he pushed over the tables used for currency exchange and the chairs of those who sold doves. He didn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He taught them, hasn't it been written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a hideout for crooks. The chief priests and legal experts heard this and tried to find a way to destroy him. They regarded him as dangerous because the whole crowd was enthralled by his teaching. Here ends these readings. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Christians are usually quite clear, I find, that compassion is a part of our calling as the people of God. However, I find it I find that somehow many Christians are less clear, at least by the way they tend to practice their faith, that advancing justice is also equally a part of our calling as the people of God. Biblical justice seeks to redress the root causes behind people's needs and their pain. Biblical justice continues to ask the question, why this pain, until these root causes are unearthed and addressed? Charity often provides for a short-term fix by helping people with their immediate needs, and yet charity often fails to remove the source of exploitation, the source of oppression, the source of pain that violates a person's dignity and keeps them in need. Now, going back just a little ways in our own U.S. history, an obvious and blatant example of this in our history was in the case of Jim Crow segregation, particularly in the South. 
Many white churches responded with acts of compassion to the plight of black Americans, and yet no volume of charity could reverse their political disenfranchisement and their economic subordination. Justice required both new laws and the enforcement of existing laws, matters that required policy and systemic change. Now, in a much more contemporary example, charity provides critical help for, let's say, to a single mom working full-time on a minimum wage job trying to provide for her children. And while charity provides her with a leg up, it fails to provide a leg out of poverty. Justice demands a way out of poverty, which involves higher wages and greater access to affordable health care and child care so that this single mom doesn't have to make a choice between caring for her kids and trying to make a livelihood. So let's spell this out with another example. Charity mentors a child who lags behind on their test scores, often because they are stuck in a failing or inadequate school. However, justice demands reforms to our educational systems to ensure that every child receives a quality education in the first place equally. Charity, for another example, can provide counseling and job training to inmates. An alarming percentage of, by the way, who were wrongfully convicted. But justice demands that the wrongfully convicted are exonerated and that the criminal justice system is reformed to prevent wrongful convictions from happening in the first place. Are you with me? The difference between charity and justice. One is a short-term fix. One is a long-term effort to solve the problems that create the bind. Unfortunately, justice and compassion are often pitted against one another, creating a false dichotomy, this, this idea that we have to choose between either charity or justice. But the prophet Isaiah resolves this false dichotomy in the 58th chapter we read a moment ago of, of the book titled Isaiah. Isaiah is addressing Israel in roughly 540 years before the time of Jesus, which were 45 years after the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem by the Babylonian Empire and the deportation of many Jewish people to Babylon. And in this text we read a moment ago, Isaiah speaks against the dangers of superficial religious ritual as a substitute for real justice and compassion. In this case, the ritual of fasting is worthwhile, he says, only insofar as it advances our identification as the people of God, which manifests itself as loving mercy, doing justice, and to borrow from, that is to borrow from another prophet, Micah. To the degree that rituals become a pattern, they can also become a barrier to our discipleship and no longer serve as an act of devotion. In Isaiah 58, it begins by asking what kind of fasting God seeks from God's followers. And Isaiah said, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loosen the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke? And goes on to say, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? That when you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn them away from your own flesh and blood? In this passage, people fast, and they see that as the end game, a righteous act. However, Isaiah rejects fasting that is disconnected from the works of compassion and justice. Genuine compassion for the poor and the oppressed is deemed more important than purely correct worship, ritual, or sound doctrine. 
God prefers, Isaiah is saying, acts of righteousness that overturn the injustice afflicting the downtrodden over pious worship that has no bearing on loving and protecting our neighbors. Isaiah is also warning us not to let our religious acts and forms of worship devolve into purely private and personal enterprise. Isaiah goes on to say that livelihood, the livelihood and the spiritual health of the people of God is directly tied to the liberation of the downcast and the downtrodden among them. After we've engaged in acts of compassion and justice, Isaiah said, then, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Now the text is clear that healing is not limited to those who are hungry or homeless, but includes those who have bread and space to share. In other words, in Isaiah's vision, it is not some people healing other people, but rather everyone getting healed. Isaiah ends this extraordinary text saying, the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt and you shall raise up the foundation of many generations and you shall be called repairer of the breach, restorer of the streets to live in. I love this image of people being used by God to become repairers of the breach, menders of the broken, restorers of the streets to live in. Now, when you carry this imagery over into the New Testament, these images are inextricably tied. These images of justice are tied to an understanding of what is called the kingdom of God. I prefer to leave out the G and make it less patriarchal and more equality-driven, since in the substance of this teaching, that is the ultimate goal, our kinship. The kingdom of God serves as a central motif describing Jesus' mission and witness to the world. Jesus begins his ministry announcing that the kingdom of God was at hand. The kingdom becomes both a future event going to happen fully someday, but also a present reality as we do the work as God's chosen people. God's reign is brought in through Jesus Christ, even if its ultimate consummation remains a future event. This kingdom of God we may never see fully realized, and yet we are called to throw our very life work into this mix, creating a world that is more loving, more just than we already have. And Jesus addressed the injustice and greed and exploitation going on at the temple. And his most dramatic confrontation with exploitation took place in Mark 11, which we just read a moment ago. And he enters the temple, and in a radical and provocative act, Jesus overturns the tables of the money changers. Now, Jesus had just made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on what, if you were around here, we celebrated as the Sunday before Easter called Palm or Passion Sunday. And those riding into the city, and he was riding into the city on a donkey, and people were there proclaiming, Hosanna in the highest. And then Jesus' very next public act is what we read today. He enters into the temple where he sees money changers conducting their business and merchants selling doves. And in the time of Jesus, you have to understand, the temple operated as the central bank, a place of commerce in which money changers collected interest and fees for the exchange of borrowing money. 
And during the time of Passover, it was common for money changers and merchants to do big business in the temple, often charging inflated exchange rates and interest rates. Religious leaders, they would also sell doves at an exorbitant price, the ones that were going to be used in religious rites and sacrifices. And Jesus' righteous anger is directed both at the temple being defiled by commerce and at commerce that exploits God's people. And Jesus quotes the prophet Jeremiah saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers, he told them. Jesus' words are very revealing. To be robbed means that someone is being abused or that someone is being stolen from by force or by deception. And therefore, the cleansing of the temple becomes a prophetic and symbolic attack on the whole temple system for practicing injustice in the name of God. The same kind of confrontation offered both in Isaiah 56, just one chapter after what we read today, and in the prophet Jeremiah chapter 7. Now, I wonder how Jesus would confront modern-day forms of greed and exploitation today. Some exploit and use the Christian symbol of the fish. Have you noticed this? To portray a front on their business card or even signs on their doors. Surely that person has a fish. They must be followers of Jesus. They've got that logo. Some advertise themselves as a Christian business and they say they're closed on Sundays, but they won't extend health care to all of their employees equally because they discriminate against single mothers or against same-sex couples. Oh, but they make a tasty chicken sandwich. What can the average person do to make a difference in all of this? I mean, can we really make a difference in this great, big, old, corrupt world when we are just a few people? I think we can. Simply and plainly, no matter how much cheaper a business promises they can fix your house, ship you the best product, or serve you the most delicious chicken sandwich, if you notice that they're practicing greed or discrimination or exploitation, I would encourage you not to give them a single penny and to tell them why. Tell them your faith demands that you give your dollars to businesses and to service providers that treat all of their employees and potential customers with equal dignity and respect because that's God's vision for the world. And then stick to your convictions no matter how delicious the chicken sandwich looks. And we can combat these contemporary forms of exploitation through the power of our consumer choices, but also through political and economic pressure. The common mistake that American Christians make is that like our society, we tend to individualize and isolate every little incident of injustice from, uh, from one another. But what I think Isaiah and Jesus would call us to do today is to see that that chicken sandwich sold by the company promoting itself as a Christian company, and yet who's not giving health insurance to single moms sometimes or same-sex couples, is connected to the shame that same-sex couples and single moms sometimes feel for their circumstances or for being simply who God created them to be, which is then connected to overwhelmingly high suicide, suicide rates among gay and lesbian teenagers and young single mothers. I think what Jesus and Isaiah would call us to do is to see that by not saying something 
to that contractor with the fish symbol on their business card who, by the way, never really fixed the problem at the widow's house but left her with the leaking roof and now the rotting ceiling and still managed to overcharge her, that by not saying something about that contractor's exploitation of the Christian faith, not to mention the widow, we allow that contractor to continue to rob the vulnerable and to rob the Christian faith of any credibility whatsoever. Our silence in those moments is complicity. We become a part of the problem when we do not speak up for the world, for our faith, and for our own self-respect when we go to look in the mirror in the long run. When we don't challenge dumb blonde jokes told at the workplace, we need to realize that we are allowing women and girls everywhere to be told and to grow up believing that someone can be inferior because of their gender or something so superficial as the color of their hair. We're reinforcing the stereotypes and the harm by not challenging that status quo. And part of doing better is knowing better. Knowledge is power. And what I think God calls us to do as people of faith is to always seek to know more, not for the sake of saying, I know more, look at me, but to, so that we can do better. We have to ask ourselves and then prove by our actions or inactions what norms are we reinforcing. And how would someone else see or hear what I am hearing and seeing? And what would God have me to say or to do? Underneath every injustice and crisis are layers of root causes. And these complexities, they can be paralyzing and overwhelming when you start to look at them all. Because Americans, it seems, have become pretty obsessed uh, with just looking at these outbreaks of injustice and never getting to the root. We just isolate all these little things. And I think it's proliferated by the fact that we, we're kind of obsessed with this... Uh, um, Crime and detective shows, I think. Have you noticed this in primetime television for the last decade or so? You know, CSI, Miami, New York, cold case. I, I know I'm out, out of touch on some of these. They're not my favorite. But, you know, most of the shows are adaptations of real-life cases, modified and often exaggerated for a television audience. And almost every show, here's the pattern. A crime happens. Then a flashback that provides clues around the motives behind the crime happens with the culprit, who it might be. Apprehending that criminal requires careful questioning of witnessing and suspects and meticulous analysis of evidence and an often elaborate mapping out of the connection between clues and suspects. But you see, people of faith who seek to answer the call of God for building a just world, we have to apply some of that rigor. We have to use the God-given talents and abilities that we've been gifted with and map out the injustices in a world like that. It's much more productive than TV show. We see all of these things happen, and it's okay to spend some time reflecting on that. That's called, uh, that's called godly reflection and prayer, when we begin to reflect on those injustices and map them out. We have to understand the ways that they interact with one another, often causing a chain reaction that goes back and exacerbates the original injustice. And we have to take some clues from Jesus, who modeled a commitment to expose and address injustices in the world. We must clear our heads of the notion that faithful Christians never get mad. We must remember that there is such a thing as a holy discontent with and for the status quo. Sometimes being a follower of Jesus means comforting the afflicted. And sometimes following Jesus means afflicting the comfortable. Sometimes being a follower of Jesus means collecting toys at your church 
and delivering them as Christmas presents for families who are poor or struggling and bringing a little bit of heaven right here to earth. And sometimes being a follower of Jesus means finding out why these families who are struggling are poor, why they have no health insurance, why their children are struggling at school, and then raising holy hell until the powers that be are paying attention and the systems begin to get changed so that we're not perpetuating this kind of poverty. If you're like me, sometimes you'd rather the Christian life be easy and comfortable. And this is why churches as a whole are dying, actually, I believe across America, because we have allowed the Christian faith to become a private, internalized, spiritually focused religion, devoid of any connection to the transforming of our social systems around us in the real world. And young people, I got to tell you, they can smell a phony religion 10 miles away. And when the gospel is limited to what a single person believes inside their own mind about God or Jesus, but has no compelling effect on this person to connect with the needs of others for the sake of upbuilding the world around them, that is not the gospel of Jesus. That is some other gospel. This is the gospel of self-soothing consumerism, where Jesus has become a product, a sort of personal fire insurance policy, if you will, the gospel of that version is only 200 years old, not 2,000 years old. It's about 200 years old and traces its roots back to the Industrial Revolution when making stuff and owning it for ourselves became a modern obsession. But you cannot own the gospel of Jesus like a possession. You cannot corner the market on Jesus for your own selfish purposes. The legitimate gospel of Jesus has roots that go back even further than 2,000 years ago, even further than the prophet of Isaiah. The real gospel cannot be owned, but it owns you. When you realize that you have a burning desire to see the inherent dignity and equality of all persons celebrated, and you're willing to make yourself inseparably connected to the plight of everyone else in your corner of the world, rich, poor, black, brown, white, gay, straight, all for one and one for all. That's the gospel of Jesus. The biblical roots of justice run deep. Clear back to the stories of creation where these questions were asked. Am I my sister's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? People who ask these questions, they generally already know the answer. The question is, how safely and how well do you want your sister and brother kept? And the answer is as safely and warmly, as comfortably and as securely as I want to keep myself. Because the biblical roots of justice, they call us to demand that in fact, and in fact live our lives as our sister and our brother's keepers. Thanks be to God. Amen.